I don't like the worship at Charlotte Chapel. Now, this is the moment when I wish that I was a mind reader, particularly of the minds of the elders, because some of you might be thinking all sorts of things, but I want to assure you that these aren't my words. They were the words that were said to me by a theological student who came to help with the audit in our office. He'd been an accountant beforehand. He was sent by the auditors to help with the audit in our headquarters office. In conversation with him, I discovered that if we got rid of all the hymns and all the music, he would have been a lot happier. And I also discovered that he'd never been to Charlotte Chapel. (laughs) But I've heard that sort of comment, you know, from time to time about uh, different situations, things. Sometimes people say it and when you begin to quiz them, what they mean perhaps is they don't like uh, Luke playing the drums. Or perhaps they don't like some of the singing items that take place. Or perhaps they don't like the congregation sometimes uh, getting a little bit enthusiastic and sometimes they clap their hands. Worship has become very much an overused word. Years ago it was used of morning worship and evening worship. And we didn't use it very often in other terms, but these days we have worship choruses. We have worship leaders. We have worship celebrations. We have worship seminars. We can go to college and we can have study with worship modules. And just only two weeks ago, I got an invitation to a conference, a worship conference. And in the midst of the uh, notice, it said, learn how to enjoy your worship. And you know, I begin to wonder if in some ways we've got it wrong. Somehow we've got the focus changed. It was over a hundred years ago that Andrew Murray, the preacher and writer, most of his ministry in South Africa, he said there is a worship that satisfies the flesh because it's in the energy of the flesh. Something that is superficial. Something that is outward. And perhaps it's true that In these days we've become very much more concerned about the way that we worship than the one who we worship. We've made worship to be something that is very general. But when we think of what the Lord Jesus said on one occasion, we find that it wasn't something general and mechanical but that it was something that was to be very spiritual and very personal. The occasion was when the Lord Jesus met a woman who 
had a lot of sin in her life, a lot of need. And he got into conversation with her, seeking to bring the truth to her. And she diverts it from herself. And she says, our fathers said they ought to worship in one mountain and some others say that they ought to worship in another mountain. What's right? Where should we worship? And the Lord Jesus came back with the answer that they that worship the Father must worship him in spirit and in truth. The worship was to be something that was personal. Something that meant something to the person involved. Some years ago there was a little book published called The Wonder of Worship and that's where I stole the title uh, for my sermon from. But on the cover of that book it showed the picture of Moses at the burning bush. Because whatever else this is. Now, if you read the commentaries, you'll find that the, some of them argue, well, was it the fire that was important? Or was it the fact that the bush wasn't consumed that was important? And they have all ways of interpreting this. For me, I think it was the, the important thing was that it was Moses worshipping. That this in the life of Moses was something that was personal, it was something that was intense. It was something that for Moses changed the course of his life and much else within his life too. But before we think of Moses, I want us to take just, as it were, one step backwards and I want us to consider the reason why we worship. Why do we worship at all? Two reasons. One is that it's our purpose in being created. We read in the Word of God, in the story of creation in the book of Genesis, how the different parts uh, were created each day. And then we come to man, and he was created. But then we read regarding man that God breathed into man, and man became a living soul. You see, man is different from every other part of creation. And by man, of course, I'm including women uh, as well, using it generally. There's something within us that has to worship. All the animals can feed and they can see and they can hear and they can move and they can react. But they don't worship. And yet, wherever you would go in the world, you'll find that man worships, even uh, in the darkest uh, jungles, we might say. That there has to be expression to this part of man, this spiritual part, that needs to worship, because God created man to worship and to worship himself. There's rather a facetious little verse that some of you perhaps know. says, once I was a tadpole with a tail to swim and then I was a froggy with my tail tucked in. Then I was a monkey swinging from a tree. Now I am a doctor with a PhD. <laughs> I don't mean to belittle those who struggle with 
creation and evolution. But what that does emphasise is that there's a tremendous gap, not just in the evolutionary process or the theory of the evolutionary process, but there's a tremendous gap between the ape who doesn't worship and the man who does worship. And we are created for worship. The other reason why we worship is because it's not only God's purpose for us in creation, but it's God's provision for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible is a book about worship from beginning to end. It starts with Adam worshipping in the garden. It ends with a new heaven and a new earth, with a redeemed people, a recreated people, worshipping God for all eternity. And in between it tells the story how that sin entered into the world. How that there became this barrier between God and man, or man and God I should say. A man no longer was able to worship as, they, as he should do. Worship became distorted. Worship became depraved. And then God in his mercy and in his grace sent the Lord Jesus Christ to die on the cross that that barrier might be removed, that the price might be paid for our sin. The word of God reminds us that he died the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, that we might have fellowship with God, that again that spiritual side of us might be able to express uh, itself with confidence and with assurance, not because we're worthy, but because of the merits and the provision made for us uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, that should thrill us this morning. Yes, it's our purpose in creation. The Westminster Confession reminds us when, we, uh, when it asks the question, what is uh, man's chief end? It comes back with the answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Our purpose is to worship, to enjoy God, to worship Him. Not just to enjoy the form of worship, but the one we worship. And that is made possible through the provision on the cross by the Lord Jesus Christ. But what of Moses? This incident in the life of Moses brings to us not the reason why we worship, but it brings to us the reality of the one we worship. Moses we read, turned aside to see this burning bush. His worship was inspired by what he saw. His worship was also inspired by what he heard. There was this bush that burned, and I've already mentioned it, it wasn't consumed, there was something strange, something different about it. But the important thing in the scripture is that it says that the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses. Now, the technical word is that this was a theophanic manifestation of Christ. In other words, it was God, it was the Lord Jesus appearing in Old Testament times to an individual and it happens not just in this instance, but in other instances through Scripture. Moses 
met with God. I want us to think about the God that he met with. He met with a God who was a God of purity. Arthur Pink, in his uh, commentary on the book of Exodus, uh, states that the fire was a manifest emblem of God's holiness. Fire is associated with purity. Fire is used for refining silver and gold. speaks of purity. And the word of God makes it very clear to us that our God is a holy God. We read it in the prophecy of Isaiah. And Isaiah echoes that again time and time again in his prophecy. He says, who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Habakkuk, the prophet, reminds us that our God is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. A holy God. A thrice holy God. Perfectly holy God. But some say, well, it's hard to believe in a holy God when you live in a dirty world. And perhaps there's a truth in that, that it is hard for us to conceive in our minds that which is perfectly holy. But the Word of God reveals to us that our God is holy, perfectly holy. And His character isn't changed by the changing whims of man or the statements of man. His character is unchanging and the God who we worship this morning in Charlotte Chapel is a holy God. And part of the wonder of worship is that we who are sinners through the Lord Jesus Christ can worship a God who is a holy God. Moses had to take off his shoes. Moses bowed his face. He was afraid in the presence of God. But that same God this morning invites us to come and to fellowship with him, even though he's a holy God. Not only a God of purity, but he reveals himself to Moses as a God who is a God of power. The fire speaks of power. My hometown is Midlands, in the Midlands, Derby. We had two major industries in Derby. One was the Rolls-Royce making the aero engines and the other was the great railway works. And in those railway works there were the huge engines weighing hundreds of tons pulling great rows of carriages with hundreds of people on them taking them from Derby to Edinburgh or Derby to London or wherever. Now I'm going back a long time. I'm not talking about the diesels. In those days, they had coal fires in the engine and they shoveled coal onto them the whole of the journey because did not fire, there was power. And fire speaks to us of power. And it speaks of power in the scripture. There was an occasion when uh, Elijah the prophet was confronted by the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and they made altars. And the cry went up, the God that answers by fire, let him be God. And fire was to be the symbol of the uh, authority and the almightiness 
of God. Speaks of power. But the Lord made it very much more personal than that to uh, Moses. I read on into chapter 4 because he said to Moses, he said, Moses, that staff that's in your hand, take it and throw it onto the ground. And as he threw it onto the ground, it became a snake. And we read in the word of God there that Moses ran from it. He was afraid of this snake. And then the Lord said to Moses, he said, take it by the tail. And that was a very, very strange command. Some years ago, as a family, we were in Toronto and we went to the zoo. We hadn't been very long in the zoo before we saw a notice um, that there was a demonstration of snake handling going on. So, myself and my younger boy, uh, we went to see this demonstration of snake handling. And we were told in that demonstration that when you hold a snake, you hold it behind the head. And I clearly remember the person saying, never hold a snake by the tail, because if you hold it by the tail, its head will turn round and it will bite you. And the Lord is saying to Moses, Moses, take that serpent that's wriggling on the ground, that snake, and hold it by the tail. And Moses does so. And he again becomes a staff. What is the Lord saying? Surely, amongst other things, it's saying that the serpent, the snake that came to the Garden of Eden, the manifestation of, the, of Satan and evil, to tempt Eve and lead Adam astray. That God's power is greater than the power of evil. You see, Moses was to face all the evil and all the dynamic power that there was behind the Egyptian uh, regime. But he said something else. He said, Moses, take your hand, put it inside your cloak. Moses did it and it came out and it was leprous. It had leprosy on it. He said, put it back in again. And it came out clean. And again, what was the Lord saying? Well, leprosy in Scripture. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that a person who's a leper is any more a sinner than anybody else. But it's often used as a picture of sin. And what the Lord is saying that I'm the God who can deal with sin. I'm the God who can deal with the devil. I'm the God who can deal with Satan. You see, the Lord was asking Moses to do a job that was far, far too big for him. But it wasn't too big for God. And Moses needed to be very, very conscious that his God was a God of power. Yes, the God of fire but the God who was greater than the power of Satan and the greater than the power of sin. We used to sing an old chorus uh, a long time ago that said, Jesus is stronger than Satan and sin, that Satan to Jesus must bow, therefore I triumph without and within, for Jesus saves me now. I don't know your challenge today. 
but very often I know there's a margin of difference, a big margin of difference, sometimes between what we feel that the Lord is asking of us and what we feel able to do. But as we worship a God of power, he changes the I can't into the I can through Christ. The God of power, but he said something else to Moses. He said, I am the God of the present. Moses asked the question, he said, who shall I said, say sent me to these people? The answer came back. What answer would you have expected? A great theological title? The answer came back in two very, very simple words. I am. So simple that we almost consider it to be childish. And yet within those two words, there's a tremendous truth that our God and Moses' God is the God of the present, present tense. I looked again at the commentaries. It said that these two words meant that God was saying that he is the eternally self-sufficient one. Another said that it meant that God was the God of the eternal present tense. Now let's think about that for a moment. He said to Moses, you see, I'm the God of your fathers. That's the past. He says, I've got a plan for you for the future. That's the future. But he's not just saying that, he's saying, in this moment of time, I am. I am. You see, Moses could very easily have said to the Lord, Lord, you're 40 years too late, because 40 years previously, Moses had stepped out from Pharaoh's palace, he'd stood uh, to take his stand with the children of Israel, and it had all gone wrong and failed. And he could have said, where were you then, God? God says, I am. I'm not 40 years too late. There's a little incident in the New Testament where the Lord Jesus receives a message from Martha and Mary. They were close friends of the Lord Jesus and they had a brother, Lazarus. And the message was that Lazarus was very ill. And Jesus does something very, very strange we read that he waits for four days and then he goes to them. Why? I'm not going to answer that question, but we find that when he does go, that Martha comes out to meet him and Lazarus has died three days, four days ago. And Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here when he was ill, he wouldn't have died. She had a saviour that would have met the need four days ago. And then Jesus said to her, don't you believe that Lazarus will rise from the dead? 
Yes, she said, I believe that he'll rise from the dead in the last day. And that was the future. And before we criticise Martha, we often do this. We look to the past, we look to the future, but the Lord says, I am. And the Lord Jesus said to Martha and to Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. In other words, I am equal for this situation now. And what he would say to us, I believe, in this morning's service is that he is equal for the situation that faces us. Now, this, in a congregation of this size, there's a multitude of needs. And I don't know the needs, but what I can say is that the Lord that you can worship is the Lord who will say to you, I am. Think how many times the Lord Jesus said, I am. If you're lost, seeking the way, he says, I am the way. If you're full of doubts and fears, he says, I am the truth. If you feel that life is meaningless, and as some would say, better off dead, he says, I am the life. If you're dissatisfied, if there's that constant hunger and you're not getting satisfaction, he says, I am the bread of life. If you feel oppressed by the darkness, he says, I am the light. He's the I am. The I am that can meet the need. You see, Moses needed to worship a God who wasn't just the God of the past and the God of the future, but who was the God of the present. See, it wouldn't be very long until he'd be in a very difficult situation. He'd led the people out of Egypt, yes, and he'd come to the Red Sea. And in front of him was the Red Sea. Behind him, there, was, there were the Egyptians pursuing, and the people panicked. They were trapped. What was the answer? And Moses says to the people, says, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Why? Because Moses worshipped a God who says, I am. It means we can bring you, you can bring your need to the Lord this morning. You can bring your situation to the Lord this morning. You can bring your sin to the Lord this morning. He says, I am. I'm equal to that need. But it was also the revelation of a God who planned. He says, I have plans for your life. Moses would have very easily have been able to say, how can I believe that? Forty years I spent in the palace of Pharaoh. These last 40 years I've spent in the desert. My life doesn't make sense. And God says it does make sense. Because I have a plan. Someone has said that Moses spent 40 years learning to be somebody in the Egyptian palace. He spent 40 years learning to be nobody in the desert that for the next 40 years he might be God's body. He might be a person walking in the will of God, doing what the Lord wanted him to do. There's a book that has the intriguing title, Angels Don't Wear Shoes. What does it really mean? What does it say? It's saying that if the Lord wants to reach men and women with the gospel, 
if the Lord wants to do his will here on earth, it's not through the angels, but it's through his people. You remember when the Lord wanted to reach the Ethiopian eunuch? He sent an angel. Yes, but he sent the angel to Philip and told Philip to go. And it was Philip who had to wear the shoes and go. And if the Lord wants to reach those people that are in your circle, it's through you. Moses had a path to walk in. God had a job for him to do. There's a verse that says, Christ has no hands but our hands to do his work today. He has no feet but our feet to lead men in his way. He has no lips but our lips to tell men why he died. He has no help but our help to bring men to his side. What if our hands are busy with other work than his? What if our feet are walking where sins and lament is? What if our lips are speaking things that his lips would spurn? How can we hope to help him or hasten his return? A God who is pure, a God who is a God of power, a God who is a God of the present, a God who is a God who plans. But he's also a God who comes to Moses, who is a God who is personal. He says, Moses, Moses. Moses thought that in the desert no one knew him. He didn't count for anything, he was hidden. And God says, Moses, I know you by name. And all the feelings within Moses' heart perhaps came to the surface the inadequacy, the inferiority, the insecurity, the isolation that he'd suffered for years. They all bubbled to the surface. And yet had the reassurance from God himself, Moses, I know you. And the wonderful thing is that the Lord knows us individually. And Moses had to come to understand that God loved him, that God could change him, that God could use him, that God could bless him. And our God's the same today. And the God that we worship is not just a God who is great and glorious in his majesty and in his power and in his holiness. Not just a God who is, says I am. Not just a God who plans, but a God who knows us personally. The wonder of worship the wonder of worship, the one we worship. Very briefly, what happens when we really worship? When we get beyond the superficiality? When we get to that moment when we bow in the presence of God and we, it comes home to us all, some, all of this truth? What's the result? There are three results, very simple results in the life of Moses. The Lord says, I want your shoes. He speaks of two things. Shoes were dirty. There is the worship of repentance. Taking off our shoes, turning from sin. Shoes speak of where we walk. For Moses it meant walking in a new path. In the will of God. He says, I want not only your shoes, but I want your staff. 
I want to tell you about stuff and to use it speaks again of two things. The stuff was his shepherd's stuff. It was his work. Do you worship God in your work? You see, we talk about Sunday worship. But what about Monday worship and Tuesday worship and Wednesday worship and Thursday worship and Friday worship and Saturday worship? If we worship God every day and all we do belongs to him. It's not only his work and sometimes the Lord calls us to hand over our staff that he might change our work and what we do and what we're involved in. But he also meant his security because that was the staff that protected him and provided for him. It meant handing over his trust to God. And one last thing. I didn't read the chapter but in chapter 6, we find that Moses goes to um, Pharaoh and then he comes back and he says to the Lord, he says, Why? Why did you send me? I was an utter failure. Moses didn't, uh, Pharaoh didn't listen. And instead of easing the burden of the Israelites, they've got twice as much to do. And the oppression has increased. It didn't work out. You've made a fool of me. Why? Because there was still too much of Moses and there was too little of God. He says, Moses, hand over your shoes, yes, and your staff. But most difficult of all, and most important of all, hand over yourself and your reputation and really be lost in the wonder of worship. Wonder, worship, I should say, is not words on our lips, but it's wonder and it's willingness in our hearts. Why did I read verse 31? That fourth chapter, we read that the people worshipped. Why did they worship? Because there was a man who'd met with God who was leading them and he worshipped.